This is the business of pleasure. I live life to enjoy it. And I don't really care what anybody has to say. I come from a family of strong women. And, you know, I mean, I just, that's what I know. Because we're scared to talk about it. That is so crazy to me. Because at the end of the day, everybody's doing it. People need to stop being so hush-hush about everything and so shy about everything because sex is not a bad thing. Welcome to the podcast, The Business of Pleasure, presented to you by Bedroom Candy. Bedroom Candy is a sexual health and wellness company and brainchild of Grammy-winning singer, songwriter, and star of The Real Housewives of Atlanta, Miss Candy Burris. Our host and president of Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties, Nadine Thompson, takes an in-depth look at the people, products, and stories behind the nationwide home party company. New episodes are released Thursdays. Listen, learn, and enjoy. Welcome to this week's episode of The Business of Pleasure, sponsored by Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties. This week, we have the rare opportunity to speak with Dr. Karen Bondar. She holds a PhD in freshwater ecology from the University of British Columbia. She's written and hosted a variety of programs on TV and online, the Science Channel, Discovery Networks Worldwide, National Geographic Wild, and Scientific American. She is the writer and host of the animated online series, Wild Sex, based on her last book of the same name, with over 30 million views to date. And Wild Moms, I guess will be coming out in spring of 2018, both at Seeker. In addition to her writing and hosting, Dr. Bondar works with Taxon Expeditions in Leiden, Netherlands, to bring citizen scientists to remote ecosystems to discover new species. When she's not working, Bondar lives to make glass art, bake, go on long hikes, and spend time with her four children. Now, I hope I pronounced them properly. Why don't you say their names? Sure. They are Shaden, Loanna, Pharaoh, and Juna. Really nice. And her three dogs and her cat. (laughs) That's awesome. It's a measure. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to find out more about the names. I'm sure there's a story behind it. So (laughs) welcome to this week's episode, Dr. Bondar of The Business of Pleasure. Generally, this is... Thank you. It's really great to have you. And I'm really excited because anybody Canadian I love because I'm a Canadian citizen as well. I grew up in Toronto, so... Yeah, yeah, yes, I went to York <laughs> University there, and then um, when I was 28, I moved, I came across to the United States to go to graduate school and fell in love and got married and have not returned. And the rest is history? Yeah, the rest <laughs> is history. I was going to be a child and family therapist, but here I am, the president of a sex toy company. So Right, <laughs> I know. You know, God had his own plan. I had mine, but he had his. So, you know, I'm just thinking, okay, we'll roll with this. We'll roll with this. eh? (laughs) Who could could predict these things? I often say to my audiences, you know, I didn't really dream as a young girl about being sort of, you know, the world's foremost expert on 
wacky penises and things like that. (laughs) It is what it is. It is what it is. And I think that um, our viewers are going to love this because I enjoyed it. I mean, when they sent me the book, I just looked at it. I thought this is really awesome. And I started flipping through and reading it and I've been really enjoying it. So I think it's going to be a really great and interesting way to talk about um, to talk about sex. I, you know, I sure hope so. Thank you. (laughs) You know, everything from the razor sharp penises and murderous carnal cannibals and spontaneous (laughs) chemical warfare in an epic battle between the sexes. It sounds like it should be a chapter in Star Wars, you know, like they should have a wild sex chapter in there because it just sounds so great. You know, and it's funny because as a as a wildlife biologist, and especially as someone familiar with the mating habits and general ecology of invertebrates in particular, a lot of these aquatic larvae and things like that, this is what you see in horror movies. <laughs> this is where a lot of those storylines come about is what really happens in the animal kingdom. It is rough out there. I mean, we're lucky to be human. <laughs> I can't wait to find out more. It's really uh, interesting. So um, what I I wanted to start with, um, you know, I was reading in the forward. There was just so much, you know, to take in. And I know that there's so much um, that we can talk about. Um, and I was reading the for- the forward. And, and what I thought was uh, really interesting was, just again, the whole idea of how, um, you know, men create so much sperm and women have these rare eggs and already mm-hmm. you begin with an imbalance. It's not equal. It, it gets, you know, right from the beginning, there is a difference there. And I, I thought, wow, you start with the power imbalance right from the go. Um, yeah, and I love the way that you bring up that point, because it's one of those things right from the get go, males and females are essentially at war with one another. And so when I say it is, we are lucky to be human, I, I mean that in a number of ways. <laughs> Quite mm-hmm. literally, it is lucky to be human, uh, in that we aren't ripping off body parts and shoving them into each other's you know, orifices and things like that. Um, but the very nature of what males produce, which is the sperm, you know, and, right. and on, on average, each human male will produce about 70 million of those per ejaculate. I mean, that's a lot. And, yeah. but, but when you think about a human female, on the other hand, where we drop one egg, we ovulate once per month, um, and that leaves us out of reproductive commission if we do happen to get fertilized uh, during any particular month, then we're out for another nine months. So, you know, you could have a male... Uh, that that could potentially fertilize an entire room full of women during that, you know, one night or <laughs> give them a little Viagra, who knows. But the thing is, there's there's this unlimited supply of gametes, and that's the bottom line. Males always want to spread it around more. Females need to be careful because they have a finite number of very expensive things to share. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. where we see a lot of these warlike 
strategies because it really makes evolutionary sense for males and females to do entirely different things. A lot of females can actually do things like store sperm, um, and so they can just, you know, from one or two sexual encounters, they get all they want. They get all they need for their entire reproductive lives. Are you kidding? Of course, this this is bad news for males who haven't, you know, contributed yet. Oh, <laughs> and so these females, you know, they're they're evolving structures to to get rid of the males and males are trying to uh, e- are evolving structures to to do the exact opposite thing. They're they're sort of arms races down to specific holders and, you know, weapons and things. It's 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 really quite dramatic. Wow. Wow, that's so fascinating to me. So (laughs) where would you like to start? I mean, there's so much that we could talk about. And the power imbalance, I thought, was interesting. And I guess um, I guess the one question I would have to ask is, do you see a power imbalance even within the human population. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I mean, we're talking about, you know, uh, yes. Do you see a power imbalance for humans as well? So there's a couple of very compelling examples um, in the animal kingdom about, you know, when we talk about mammals and primates, specifically humans are a primate. Is there a gender imbalance in our species? I would argue there absolutely is. Many of the uh, women's marches that were taking, a pla- taking uh, place across the world mm-hmm. in, the, in the recent weeks uh, show us that, you know, we have this some kind of mismatch between right. the power that women seem to feel they have and the power that men seem to feel that they have. And that, that's certainly carried over from many aspects of our basic biology. Somewhere that's really interesting that we can look at this is, is a couple of isolated examples where males and females uh, have, have swapped roles, if you will. There are a few animals where females have all of the sexual power, and these are animals like elephants and hyenas. So they're mammals, they're large, so we understand what they are. They're charismatic, you know, people like elephants and hyenas. We kind of identify, they have eyes and limbs, things like we do. However, females actually have engorged, enlarged genitalia that make it impossible to tell whether uh, one of them is a male or female just by looking at it. Females essentially have penises. And the reason I bring this up is because of the power imbalance that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. When, when these female um, mammals, which are elephants and hyenas, the ones with the penises, when they don't want to have sex, it is impossible for a male to have sex with them anyway. Um, coercive sex, forceful sex, is something that happens in most mammalian species, humans, primates included. Mm-hmm. Um, however... If you're a female elephant, it is impossible for a male to have sex with you if you're not on board with the action. And that's because of this penis that you have. You've got to inside out it, inside the body, for a male to be able to put his penis in. Now, these societies, elephant societies, are entirely matriarchal. Males don't have any social power. They sort of satellite in groups. The large elephant groups are made up of mothers, offspring, aunties, uh, and and other females that are that could be sisters, etc. Mm-hmm. Males have no power. I find that extremely interesting when we're wow. talking about penises wow. yeah. and power and social uh, behavior. Of course, on one hand, you could think it's flippant, but uh, actually, there's so much there. It's quite compelling. Well, wow. so did you say that the woman has an internal penis as well? That's right. So what happens is 
she has to, it's almost if you, if you think about like a sock, if you put a sock on your uh, hand and arm, mm-hmm. and then you have to inside out that sock, Right. essentially what she has to do, but that inside outing of it mm-hmm. happens inside her body. So oh. it sort of turns inside out and creates a pocket inside her body. And that is the pocket into which the male will eventually be able to put his penis if she lets him. Interesting, because when I was we were in Africa this past last year and we were on a safari. And I remember seeing the elephants and their penises were so huge. I mean, they were like almost the same size as their leg. It's, it's quite remarkable to see. Yeah. And. You know, and and especially, you know, even watch trying to watch some of these animals have sex is quite laborious. And it's not this, you know, romantic, graceful gesture. I mean, an elephant has to go through a lot of uh, <laughs> of hardship to to actually try and achieve intromission or to try and get a penis inside of a of a vaginal opening it's not an easy thing to do for these big creatures so we're talking about a lot of weight to throw around here yeah and so she has to really want that to in to allow that to happen absolutely and that is the key part to it because if she doesn't want to he's 100% out of luck and that is quite remarkable. That is, it's not like that in humans. It's not like that in chimpanzees. It's not like that in bonobos, which are actually our closest primate relatives. However, sexual um, contact in bonobos is actually quite a bit more peaceful than it is in our other closest primate relative, which is the chimpanzee. Wow. So fascinating. Then there's something else I wanted to ask you about. Um, you talk about... You know, in the three parts of your book, you talk about meeting, the meat, yes. sex, and the aftermath. Can you tell yes. us a little bit about that, just in general? So, yeah, I mean, this is the, the sort of bigger sphere in which I wrote the book, because the process of sex, I think of sex as a process. You know, a lot of people kind of go, okay, insert part A into slot B, and then we're done. That's what sex is. But actually, no, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. We would be so naive to think that that's all animals do is simply, you know, mm-hmm. oh, identify that you seem to be a member of the opposite sex. Let's have sex. Absolutely not. Are you kidding? That's not the way it goes. You have to find a potential partner. That partner has to be at the same uh, stage of of their biological existence to want to have sex with you. They have to be in heat or in fertile mode or in breeding season or whatever that might mean. Uh, Are there predators around? What's the weather like? You know, there's so many things that have to be considered for anybody to have successful sex. Uh, And first and foremost, you have to meet the partner and find some good circumstances. If, If you have managed to do all of that, and you have had your successful sex, and you have actually created some offspring, well, then you have to make sure that your offspring make it to sexual maturity, because otherwise it's all been for naught. Right. <laughs> so right. there's this whole process, which which sex is, mm-hmm. uh, and that that's why it's so important uh, to pretty much every aspect of most animals' day-to-day lives. Sex isn't just that one 15-minute interval. We're pretty much doing what we do, what we spend our time doing most days is getting ready to have sex or dealing with what we have already done with our sex lives, if you will. Right. So so would raising children be part of that aftermath? 
Absolutely. Right. You got it. Yeah. Right. And that's why the next book is called uh, Wild Moms, because it sort of takes that um, that whole process and it breaks that down then into even more categories, because that, for the most part, it's really all about the moms um, in the animal kingdom. And that, again, goes back to what we were talking about right at the very first part of our discussion, which is that males have all this abundant and cheap sperm, wanting to spread it around as much and as often as possible, whereas females instead have expensive eggs, they are then the ones that provide the um, majority of care to any offspring. So it's a double job for a female mammal, that's for sure. Interesting. Absolutely. And, you know, just listening to you makes me think of um, my years in training to become um, a family therapist. You know, I remember one of my uh, professors talking about the fact that you know, it's so important um, in family relationships for the male or that partner to provide a holding environment in order to protect the female so she mm-hmm. can then protect the family. And that just came to mind as I was listening to you that in some cases where, you know, in that aftermath where the raising of the children become important because you want to at least get them to adulthood, that do you see that in some, is it true that in some species that the male can play an important role as far as caretaking? and protecting the home so that the children and the mom can get what they need to get to the next stage. Most definitely. And I think um, all of these systems, they kind of all work together in some ways. So yes, while you might have um, a male playing that alpha role Mm -hmm. and perhaps being the one to go out and, you know, kill and and bring home prey or food for the rest of of the group, that certainly could be uh, more akin to what we're maybe used to seeing in human society. However, with the advent of genetic sequencing technology, what we found is this kind of a setup is certainly not to be confused with sexual monogamy. Um, So in humans, we have this idea that, yep, the woman can maybe, you know, perhaps one of her roles can be to stay in the home and give birth to the children and to do all those biologically necessary things she does while the, while the male partner can go out, gather resources, bring them back in, in order to help everybody thrive back at the nest. Yeah. Um, in the animal kingdom, what's usually happening is all of that, okay, mm-hmm. but he's also going off and fertilizing a few more uh, on the side almost always. A- and as is the case with the women who are at home, women, I say women, but I mean animals of whichever species I'm talking about, the females that get left at home, it's not like they're just sitting there sad, wishing their alpha male would come back. They are quite often visited by another alpha male when their alpha male is off. Uh-huh. <laughs> other females, and so the whole thing gets very complicated, and nobody like really that. whose children belong to who. Uh, it's one great big punch bowl of keys, if you will. <laughs> So, I mean, really, like that's what monogamous, like we think it's monogamous, but it's not really monogamous. Right, right, right. Interesting. We have Mm -hmm. these values we've adopted over time. I'm not really sure where they come from, but it's interesting. Well, and, and you've hit a really important point here, which is 
monogamy in the mammalian world is actually a huge anomaly. And if you look to, you know, the the bust of the whole Ashley Madison issue and whatever that happened a few years ago, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps humans are not too far from from that kind of a scenario. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't make biological sense for a male to not be spreading the seeds that he has. Um, humans have, have decided that it does make sense for him to not do that. But, you know, I guess we'll see where our evolutionary biology takes us. Yeah, but it seems like some of our morals and values stem from religion and other things we have made up and decided were important as a way of keeping order. I don't know if much of it has to do with biology. It seems to have Mm -hmm. more to do with religion and mysticism and fears and, you know, things that we create to create order. But I don't know if they really have anything to do with who we are as humans, because now we're dealing with so much, which is, you know, um, where I was hoping to get to, um, you know, now we're talking about homosexuality, bisexuality, transgendered. I mean, there's so many different types of sexual groups that we're discovering or becoming or people are beginning to feel more comfortable um you know, talking about or or admitting to or realizing that this is who I am. I'm not just your typical, you know, you know, girl who wants to, you know, wear makeup and and go to ballet classes. I can be different. And I think that's what we see unfolding in our society is that people on the outskirts are kind of saying, hey, I'm not sure that this works for me. I'm not sure these stereotypes work for me anymore. I completely agree with you. And I love the way that you described it just there because the way you've said it's unfolding. And I think you know, there's so many things in the human's world. We try to separate ourselves from our basic biology in so many ways. Um, and in doing so, we create kind of a new suite of, of issues for ourselves. Um, and so one of the ways in which we are kind of ignoring aspects of our basic biology is to say, okay, well, as a human, you must fit into this category or this one. These are the only two that we have. And so if you're, if you're this one, then you have to act this way. And if you're this one, then you kind of act in this way. And what sort of our, our beautiful big brains have allowed us to do recently with all of our information sharing capabilities and all our um, aware, uh, abilities to be aware of people everywhere. It's giving uh, more of a voice and more of a face to people who don't go fit into category A or B. And my argument would probably be that really we aren't doing ourselves too much of a favor by, by saying that all people should fit in one category or the other. Because if we look to the animal kingdom, especially as far as things like sexual fluidity goes, in the animal kingdom, um, if you're an adult of any kind of animal, whether you are a, you know, a deer or, or a dog or a whale or a human or a monkey, you are probably having sex with males and females alike. And um, you're not discriminating too much as you go through your life. However, when it's time to create or when it's, you know, biologically, your body is ready biologically to have offspring, okay, we make it work to have uh, sexual relations with a member of the opposite sex in that case. But there's a whole lot of other stuff going on in the middle. And I think when humans try to draw order 
out of something that mm. isn't <laughs> necessarily meant to have order in it, such as nature, chaos, and biology, uh, we're setting ourselves up to fail in a certain way. Yes. There really isn't one way it needs to look. And and the explosion of of what we're understanding about things like transgenderism um, is is telling us that. Guess what? People fit all over the spectrum, and it doesn't make one right and one wrong. It just makes them different. Just makes them different, and it's unfolding. And I think we have done ourselves an injustice, and we have done... Um, our fellow humans and injustice by requiring that people fit into these, you know, certain boxes mm-hmm. that we want to put them in. And it's just, I completely it's, agree. Mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting. I think about sex, um, my family, I was born in the Caribbean and um, my family, you know, in studying sociology and anthropology, that was my first undergraduate degree. I oh, remember cool. uh, and I remember, you know, studying, you know, Caribbean culture. And one of the things they talked about was and you could see it specifically in Carib- in the Caribbean because you had the slave culture there. You had the slave masters living much closer to the slaves. I mean, it was a really kind of isolated thing. So what you saw was that the white slave masters and white men who worked, you know, um, who worked on the plantations basically took liberty with as many black females as they wanted to. I mean, they were spreading their sperm everywhere. Mm. Um, And a couple of interesting things unfolded out of that. One is what black men um, in those societies began to, what they got from that was that, Um, It was okay for men to have multiple partners, particularly of black women. So because the white women, they weren't there weren't a lot of them that wanted to come and live in the Caribbean in the hot sun, you know, with mosquitoes biting them. So, again, you had this rare white woman who was living on the plantation with her few helpers. But if men wanted to run around and have sex, they had sex with the black women. And then the black men started doing the same thing. It was really hard still in Caribbean society. It's very common for men to run around, but they see that as a status thing because they're copying the man with the ultimate power, who's the slave master. So if he could have, you know, Mm -hmm. 10 women outside his marriage, if you as a black man were able to do the same thing, you were sort of emulating the slave master, which I thought was an interesting sort of sociological thing, you know. And then those societies, many of them are Roman Catholic and very Christian. So you Mm -hmm. had this juxtaposition of men running around, having all these women, but living in this Roman Catholic Christian construct where you're supposed to be faithful to your wife. So women are following these very strict religious mores and the men are kind of running around. So there's all of this dishonesty Mm -hmm. and... It is such hypocrisy. And I think, you know, just now is finally the chance, uh, I think, at a a lot of these marches and demonstrations that are totally current are women finally standing up and going, no, because, you know, all of this, this scenario that you've just described for us is this ridiculous abuse of biology, if yeah. you will. Um, males are kind of taking advantage of their biological position. But interestingly, the thing that they're devaluing is the very thing that, that's actually biologically the most expensive. So right. humans are, are, are quite, oh gosh, silly. I, 
I don't know if maybe silly or misinformed is perhaps some of the good words. But I think we're misinformed. Be choosing. Yeah, I think we're misinformed, Karen. Mm -hmm. I think I feel like when you think about race, you think about sexism, you think about racism, homophobia. It's all misinformation, um, you know, and we, some of us want to hang on to that misinformation because we don't want to grow and change and we want to believe what we want to believe. But a lot of it is misinformation. And I think if we could just get to a point where we can observe that information and that truism and that biology is what it is. Mm hmm. Um, and if we could possibly separate that from our cognitive ability to judge for ourselves or for other people, right. that's kind of the crux of it. Because right. I think it's this ultimate judgment that we that we impart on other members of our species without really any good reason for it. Um, and in fact, w- there's actually compelling reason against it, (laughs) considering all of the diversity that we see, even in our closest primate relatives. Um, So, so yeah, I I feel like this, this could potentially be the demise of humans as a society. We're too busy being self-absorbed. Right. We're kind of missing the point in a lot of very important ways, both for our own biology as an animal, but also for the successful stewardship of our planet. I mean, that's a bit lofty, but but the bottom line is that's quite true. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the other thing that... Um you know, you mentioned um, in your notes to me was the whole idea about bisexuality. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. I'm really interested. Yeah, this is actually a movement that's gaining quite a lot of momentum. And I'm so glad that it is, because if there's a few major themes that I pulled out of writing Wild Sex, one of them is certainly that sex is fluid. And so the whole concept of, you know what, am I hetero, am I homo, or am I somewhere in between? Mm -hmm. You know, on Tuesday, am I hetero, and maybe on Wednesday, I'll be homo. That kind of, you know, without the necessarily um, cognizant uh, shifting, that's kind of how the animal kingdom looks. There are many biologically valid and relevant reasons for homosexual sex, including bonding, hierarchy establishment, practice, um, tension release because it feels good. Um, There's so many reasons for animals to have sex, and I'm not talking heterosex necessarily. I'm talking whatever sex is going to work for that particular animal at that particular time. And we see this, and here's the clincher, we see this in our closest primate relatives. So bonobos with whom we share more than 99% of our DNA Mm -hmm. are sexually fluid probably to the max. Really? Um, And so I think we can, as humans, we can really quietly observe this. We don't need to make big, lofty conclusions about what we should and shouldn't be or what anybody should and shouldn't be. We can simply observe that this open approach to sexuality seems to be what all the rest of the animals are doing. (laughs) Not just us, you know? So there's actually quite a bit of wisdom that can be gained from, from observing that it doesn't need to be this or that. And I think there's going to be a lot of peace and happiness that that eventually will come to our species when we can realize that and be okay. So when you talk about sexual fluidity, and what's the animal called? Did you say 
Oh, bonobos, Bono- chimpanzees. Okay, bonobos. So how are they, I mean, how does that play out as far as... Again, with sex, if they're if they're oh, day fluid, to day. yeah. Yeah. So so bonobos um, have very peaceful societies that are called sort of fission fusion societies. That means they're loose groupings that you know sort of maybe on on one particular day five individuals are kind of all together, and then on the next day that kind of groups with ten more, and then they seven other ones go off and do this and that and whatever. So the, the 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 groups are are known to each other, but but fluid. And sex is just a part of everyday life. Sex is a greeting. Sex is a conflict resolution. Sex is a way to pass the time. And so an individual bonobo may have sex up to 10 times a day. Um, And these could be very short little copulations. They could be a a cuddle or a smooch or a little fornication before a nap. Um, Sex is just something that happens. And interestingly, again, this is the humans, right? Humans decided somewhere along the line, that sex is this weird thing that has to happen in a bed, in a room, behind a closed door, under sheets, in the darkness, because we're embarrassed about it. The rest of the animal kingdom does not have sex behind closed doors. I mean, sex is just as common and normal as, you know, having breakfast. So that's why, (laughs) you know, if you happen to ever be at a sanctuary or, you know, anywhere and you see animals just going at it, well, why wouldn't they? It's the most natural thing they can do. Humans are the ones that make it weird. (laughs) And so do they, when you talk about fluidity, do they, women go with women and men go with men? Absolutely. Yes, there could be, in one particular day, there could be, you know, a female bonobo, for example, could have sex with another female, then with a male, then with a group, and then with a different male, and then with a different female, and then, yeah, absolutely. There's no rules. Oh, right. totally all hold, you know, there could be a group, there could be two individual partners. Homo, okay. hetero, even relatives, you name it, they're doing it. <laughs> they're having fun. <laughs> and you know what, though? Do you, that's a great point, because they actually are. Bonobos are about the most peaceful primate society um, on the record. <laughs> Is yeah. it because of the sex? Well, I would say, yeah, probably. They don't have anything to fight about. Chimpanzees, on the other hand, are quite violent, and they have coercive sex, uh, like we do. Oh, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> it's all it's all now there's an interesting um chapter in your book I think it would be a great place for us to end I mean I think I'd love to talk to you again I want to come back to some things but <laughs> there's a really, really great chapter called book's coming out soon I can get Iris to send you a copy of it too oh definitely Dr. Karen tell me about tired old ladies and dirty <laughs> old men that's oh, I'm so yes, I'm so glad you brought this one. Up. This is this is another really good one okay. um, because this is where human females become very unique in mm-hmm. the animal kingdom. Human females lose their ability to sexually reproduce at about halfway through our lives. So this right. this whole notion of menopause, where we exist for many decades, almost you want to say in a place of biological irrelevance. Uh, but that's not actually true. It's not a place of irrelevance. While we cannot directly have children once we've gone through menopause, what we can do is help our daughters or our children with right. their children. And this is a direct increase to our own biological fitness. That's your. That's our genetic blueprints. Twenty-five uh, percent related to our grandchildren, and so that's that's why that's thought to occur. 
Now, men, on the other hand, can still produce somewhat viable sperm. And I say somewhat because as a man ages, he, his body um, has to, you know, his immune system has to work a little bit harder at keeping his, the rest of his systems intact and so on. I mean, any aging animal is going to experience, it's called um, uh, senescence, or, or not reproductive senescence, but actuarial senescence, the aging of the body. Sperm isn't as good but it's still there. And so I think, interestingly, we see this reflected in our societies um, quite obviously, where women are off, perhaps they have had their children, they are off following the career path, doing something different uh, in this place of biological irrelevance. But we, we also see that males are, are still as yet unable to um, fully distinguish their sex from their professional lives. And I I know this is sort of tiptoeing around some fairly, um, you know, subjects that, that cause a lot of, of controversy, mm-hmm. but, they, but they're all very strongly and well-rooted in our biology. It, it makes sense that women don't want to have sex with men anymore once they're past a certain time. They do for fun, for recreation, but mm-hmm. not for procreation, and that's quite key. Um, women move on, and men don't. Oh, because they can just keep doing it. Correct. <laughs> So that's why you have these 80-year-old celebrity men who want the 35-year-old wife and they can have, want to have these children. They can continue because it's just, it's continuing their procreation. And he can literally be the father because he doesn't have to do anything except fertilize the egg. Right. And if he's got money, he can provide money and he can continue to to work and, again, provide the financial support. But he really doesn't have to do any of the emotional work. He doesn't have to. The woman can. And the woman does all the biological work. I mean, basically, once our eggs are fertilized, the woman's body goes to work. She transforms into a totally different animal while she is gestating that baby. And this is, of course, I guess I'm talking mostly mammals here because right. we have internal gestation. Um, we become totally different animals as okay. we create a baby, and we never return to being the same animals again after. Wow. So the whole notion of gestation, yeah, it's sort of it's a, it's a building of another animal that takes place without the help of a male. Right. Um, that's why they can still have babies. Yeah, that eighty-year-old guy, he can pull it off, right? So we yeah. give him a trophy. But what do we give to the to the to the young woman who he's uh, who he's creating this baby with? I mean, she knows what she's doing too, I suppose. And that's another interesting theory of 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 how you gain your resources for your offspring. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's working for some. Yeah, she's gaining resources for her offspring. I love I love that term. It it sounds so unjudgmental. <laughs> what was it? She's gaining resources. Yeah, she's gaining resources. For her offspring. I have to write that down. <laughs> it's <laughs> a wonderful it way of putting it. Yeah. Gaining resources for your offspring. That's great. But also, what's interesting um, is that if he is 80 and he has children and she's 35, really, to your point, he can die. In, yeah. in 10 to 15 years, right? And she now has the lifelong job, if she so chooses, to raise those children and the grandchildren. That's exactly right. And one more add-on to that is, in most of the mammalian world, the mammal guys don't even stick around in time to see the babies born. There's no reason for them to. 
they, they don't have anything to do. It could be said the same for human males. What are they supposed to do? All the developing is occurring inside the female. The female has the baby. The female is the only one who can feed the baby. She has the milk. Right. Um, you know, men can try their hardest, but there really isn't a biological job for them to do at all. And so that, that's why we don't see these, these sort of family-based type of scenarios in the mammalian world. Right. You know, it's very rare. Right. So she can literally... Um Wow, that's just so fascinating. We could go on and on about it, but it's just awesome. I enjoyed every moment of this, and I would love... And what's the title of your new book? So the new one is called Wild Moms, okay. and it's basically continuing on from that sort of phase three. Okay. Um, it's taken phase three and made it a new book. <laughs> wow, interesting. So I would love... When it comes out next month? Uh, yeah, April 3rd, actually. Okay. Oh, wonderful. So would you come on and speak with us about it? I would love to talk I'm about it. Absolutely delighted. Oh, Thank my gosh. This for having was, me for this one. Yeah, this was so great. I have so many more questions that I want to ask, but I think we might have to divide it up into another <laughs> podcast. Sounds great. Well, anytime you want me, just give me a shout. I'm always happy to, to talk to anybody who will listen. Oh, <laughs> this was really, really wonderful. And thank you so much for being yeah, on The Business you. of Pleasure and and I will be in touch. We'll get the next copy of the book. I'd love to have you on. And I'd like to get some copies of this book, purchase some copies so we can um, give them out to some of our guests, you know, maybe oh, as a... be great. I'm sure Iris would probably send you a few. Yeah, I would, lo- I would love to um, give some out um, to oh, yeah, uh, some of our really listeners, fun. have them, some of our consultants have them answer some questions. But I just learned so much and enjoyed speaking uh, to you. Um, and really look forward to our next time together. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Nadine. Thank you, Dr. Bondar, for being on this week's episode of The Business of Pleasure. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. The Business of Pleasure is brought to you by Bedroom Candy Boutique Parties. To shop with us, visit us at www.bedroomcandy.com. To join our team of consultants who own their own home-based businesses, join us online and enter the code BOP2017. That will get you a 10% discount on your starter kit. Join us today.